Mr. Steiner, I appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much. My pleasure. What's going on today? Uh, I want to talk about your background a bit, uh, where you're from, how you grew up. How did that shape your work ethic, business acumen? A big part of who you are is who raised you and where you grew up. And, you know, in my case, those two are as relevant a, a statement as you can with my mom, who was just a fierce, fierce businesswoman back in the 60s and 70s, no question, taught me a ton. And really, my second book, You Gotta Have Balls, was everything my mother taught me that I really made a lot of money. I was one of those kids who actually listened to his mother. And I think, like, when you grew up in Brooklyn, especially back in the day where it was a wide open, you, you know, you went. Nobody ever took you to school. You went to the Yankee game for an hour and a half train ride. No adults. You know, a bunch of 10-year-olds who got on the train. That's how wide open it, and that's how much has changed. You can really, I look at myself as I got a degree from Syracuse. I got a degree growing up and living in Brooklyn. And I get another degree getting out of Brooklyn safely. Uh, so, that, that I mean, that's how important I think, you know, when you grow up, especially in an urban, vibrant city, and these days, I don't know. I don't know how hard and how difficult it is and what you get out of living in a complicated area like we did in Brooklyn, but I know it's extremely beneficial to me. Does not coming from wealth help in business? It could. I mean, it did for me, but I don't think so. I, I don't think it has to go that way. Like, I think my kids grew up with wealth and they're motivated, they're focused, they're highly educated. Um, and we, you know, I, we, we didn't bullshit our kids, you know, like we told them, you know, listen, I have a lot of money. I've been successful. Now, I'm willing to share some of this with you, this little party that I'm having. You're invited always, but it's not yours. You have to decide how hard you want to work to decide what kind of party you want to have. But I do think, like, you know, the, the disadvantaged, the disadvantages that I had growing up uh, which, you know, I, I call disadvantages things that, you know, that a, a kid should have, you know, which is clothing, food, a decent shelter. You know, those disadvantages can get you a little crazy. I would say I had heat in the summer and air conditioning in the winter and, uh, you know, grew up in a, you know, a cockroach infested. Yeah, that, that could drive a kid crazy. The hunger, you know, waking up hungry and not sure where you're going to get food from can definitely add motivation. It certainly did for me. Um, but it's not the only way. But I do think that my disadvantages have completely turned into my advantages. And I think having lived at such a really low level, or, or I call it poverty, and then having a pretty you know, high level of wealth is really uh, just the irony of that. And it does enable you to really appreciate having that come from a lot. You do have a tendency to appreciate a lot more and definitely have a higher level of gratitude, which is such an important ingredient and success, you know, to be grateful uh, and to show gratitude and have gratitude on so many levels will help you get to extraordinary high levels of success, where sometimes I think people that are born on third base think they hit a triple, and then they're not really understanding how hard it is, you know, to get the third base, you know, which is not easy. Uh, we never made it easy for our kids, regardless of the money we had, and, and I, I feel like they've earned their way and earning their way around, but then it's not going to experience what I did. And there's not much I could do about it. When did you know that you had a knack for business, for marketing, things of that nature? Um, that's a great question. And I do think that, you know, this kind of entrepreneurship and hunger could be taught. It could be developed in, in your mental mindset. You don't have to be born in a really poor house or 
and you don't have to be born in any kind of house. If you want to get a certain mindset, you can learn to have it. For me, now remember, I already been working a few years on the street. I was probably 13 or 14. My mother asked me to give out. It's funny, I don't really have talked about this story, but it's true. Um, I was like 13 or 14. My mother asked me to give out circulars underneath the train at the L, you know, when the people got off the train on Kings Highway in Brooklyn. And so I was standing in front of a beauty salon, which is a few blocks away, and I was supposed to be giving out circulars where you get a special haircut or wash and set at a special price. And my mother said, didn't I tell you to go underneath the L and give out circus? I said, I am. I'm, I am doing that. She's like, well, if you were doing that, you would be standing in front of my salon. You'd be by the L. I said, I got people. I got people working. And by the way, you know, my mother didn't pay me a lot, but she gave me some money. I got three or four other stores to give me their, I create circulars for them. And I have three or four of my friends at every entrance giving out circulars for the salon and for the couple other stores that we, that we did. And I'm managing that because I'm 13 or 14, I'm managing that. She says, well, how are you paying? And how's that working? I said, well, you know, I, I, I went to a couple of friends that are really pretty wealthy and I was able to cut a deal to buy a bunch of fireworks. So I'm not paying them in cash, I'm paying them in fireworks because their parents will let, you, let them work for money. And they don't really want that fireworks either. So I'm paying them with fireworks and I'm just, you know, charging the stores X amount and then paying them Y amount of fireworks, but I'm making a certain big on the fireworks and I'm making money on all ends. And my mother said, oh boy, you are something else. Like this is, and I've been, I, I, when I say 13 or 14, which is like, we think about it on the street and I've rallied my friends to work, but I already been out in the street three or four years. You know, I started working when I was 10. So, you know, I was comfortable. I was comfortable on the street. I understood where the money was. I understood how to make money already at that point. I think it's just critical. Like, I tell people all the time, like, don't over, you don't have to overthink it. Teaching your kid how to make $1 is such a valuable lesson. And it was something my mother continually showed me, how a dollar gets made, how a dollar gets spent. And you don't need to show kids tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars because $1 turning into two is a huge lesson that I can't tell you how many kids come into my office to try to get an internship or a job and don't really even understand that concept. Can business people ever work for somebody else, for a corporation, for large company, or is it kind of something in your brain that refuses to do that? Well, there was a study done by a guy that ran the New York Post that said, and again, this is his, his thinking, um, that if you are raised in a home, if you're raised in a home that is where your, your parents are business owners, more than likely the kid's going to want to grow up and want to be a business owner, and they're not long for working for you. Listen, I, I worked a good amount of time. I didn't start my own business until I was 29, and my mother was dead set at me not starting my own business right away and really taking my time. So I was a good eight, nine years out in the marketplace working for other companies before I decided to open up my own company. So, and I thought I was a pretty damn good employee. And also, even when I sold my company when I was 40, I did work for a company for 20 years and went through all the politics with not that much upside other than what I can, you know, killing what I could eat and bonuses. And it was a pretty nice company, a $50 million company. But so, I mean, it depends. I, you know, it depends how you look at it. I, I do think, um, in this day and age, it's getting harder and harder to work for a bigger company. Um, 
entrepreneurism is at its highest, believe it or not, which is surprising. Most people would think entrepreneurism is at its highest with younger younger people, but it's it's dominated by uh, 55 to 65. And I think there's people that have just had it working for others and they've got the expertise with a little money saved up. And those are the most successful entrepreneurs is actually older people. I want to talk about Steiner Sports a bit. How did you get into that? How did that come about? I mean, it was luck. I mean, I was doing marketing. I was a, I was a restaurant guy. I was doing marketing and PR for restaurants. And uh, I kind of, the last, you know, I started the sports bar theme. It's one of the first really active sports bars. Uh, now we all see sports bars everywhere. But back then, you rarely saw a restaurant with a TV in it. And I was just trying to book some players and market players. And then I was just trying to figure out a way to make some extra money. And that's how Steiner Collectibles came about, is me doing just hundreds of appearances and then I decided to tag on some collectibles to it. It was just honestly luck that it became a brand and it became actually something that was relevant to people that especially sports fans. Uh, and it became relevant because I was doing so many appearances, working with so many athletes, hustling all over the place that people knew that my stuff was real. It was authentic. And I was really solely connected to the players. So uh, they, they were very active in buying my stuff, knowing that it was real because when I had opened it up, there was a lot of fraudulent problems. Um, it, it's really that simple. It was, it was definitely more of a money grab than it was some conceptual of me following my purpose and passion, although it moved to that. You know, I, I saw the creative side of my brain with the money-making part of my brain. You know, it definitely hit the perfect cross-section. And, and I mean, still to this day, the ideas I come up with are just, just outrageous of what I think that people would want, what I want to collect. And, I'm very grateful that a lot of people have enjoyed that vision, the stuff that I've created and started and been able to do because um, I wouldn't be doing it this long without their cooperation and support, you know, which, you know, you, you can't ever take that for granted. It's such a unique business with that unique nature comes uncertainty, I guess. Answer. How did you, uh, but how did you deal with that? Well, it's funny you say that I'm still learning to deal with it, you know, only because there's, there's so much unknown particularly on the celebrity and player end. But, you know, it's funny, one of the few classes I did well at college, there were a few, not many, but it was economics. And, you know, it's such an important on the collectible end, which you're, you're trying to create a market and analyze a market. And there's a lot of factors. And, you know, and, and those economics classes taught me to look at those factors because not all cities are equal. Not all brands of teams are equal. And you're trying to use all those that data regardless whether you have analytics or not, you know, it's a gut, it's a feel that the people of Pittsburgh are not the same as the people in Minnesota, let alone the people in Miami. And all those markets have a different kind of passion and, and also a, a, a feel for how much they'll spend on this kind of stuff. So, you know, I, I, I think the most important thing that, that's, that was difficult, especially when I was creating really almost this industry, at least laying down the groundwork, is that how do you create enough product to fulfill the demand, just not enough? Because ultimately, when you're creating a collectible, you want to short the market. You want to make sure there's not enough. You don't want to have extra, extra because you want people to have to go into the secondary market uh, almost as soon as possible and, and start paying a premium, which will show and enhance the fact that what you bought has value. The company that's a genius at this on the highest level is Nike. You know, they come out with a brand new pair of sneakers and short it. It's like one color, very limited. They're sold out almost as soon as they come out with it. And, and, and then they start hyping up a couple of little small editions of those sneakers, 
with really small additions, and those go start going through the roof. And then about a month later, they start coming out with the same sneaker and a whole bunch of colors, and people are feeling that tension that they better go get this because they're going to be worth a lot. Um, they're geniuses over there at Nike. They're, they're one of the great collectible companies, that, and I, I follow them like like religion, you know? So um, it's a fascinating business because in every business, you're trying to make as much as you possibly can and sell as much as you can. But with collectibles, it's like you're trying to make not enough. And, and, and that's a twisted mindset from a typical business standpoint. And the anxiety only comes from, you know, the players because you can't control their performance. You're investing in them. It's up, it's down, it's stuff. You, they're doing things you never thought they would do. And then there's the personal life where all of a sudden they, you know, they're doing drugs or they're beating up their wife. And it's some, and then all of a sudden now you're, they've done steroids and you're sitting with product that you've created. So you're really trying to find those kinds of things out, which I was really good at for a long time, like really studying quality of character. Because I think that ultimately does play a role. You know, you're going to go do a relatively big deal. You want to do something with a, a high quality. Maybe you can't control the winning, but you don't want to do it uh, something with somebody who's really not a good person. And that's why I kind of got lucky with the Jeter factor, Eli Manning, Messier, some really high quality uh, players. Your business has been around for so many years. You've been through the internet age, the social media age. Now they're talking about artificial intelligence and all these other things. How much do you focus on how these things impact the way you market? I mean, I try, you know, it's, it's, I think everybody's trying, but, you know, I've always been on it. I don't ignore it. I think the, you know, the important thing when new stuff is happening is to realize that everybody's figuring it out and not to avoid it. Listen, it took, I think about how long it took people to work their VCR, how to work their voicemail, how to, you know, how to work the remote. Now you see with five remotes on your table and you're working like, like you're some tech, TV technician. So I think when these things come out, especially, you know, remember older people are the ones that invented most of this stuff. Yet there's most of the older people don't know how to work most of this stuff. And it's because they lack of flexibility. I would say it's survival of the flexibility, not survival of the fittest. And this is where a lot of people are growing out of their careers. Uh, so many really brilliant, bright uh older people that just don't have the patience to get into some of the digital stuff that's going on, the AI, all that stuff is very learnable. And it's amazing how many of my friends have, have grown out of business. How they just decide that they cannot be flexible and, and, and see that the world is now buying and doing business differently. And, but I think it's a great lesson for the young ones too, to realize that you too will deal with you know serious change. I think the change we've that's occurred over the last five, six, seven years is faster or more change than I've ever seen in my 64 years on the planet. But it's there's more change coming. And uh, the only change you can guarantee, well, well, you really can't, you know, the only thing I can guarantee is there will be change. Um, and and there will be. So I, I've been on the web, the internet, social media on early. Even though I'm an older person, I'm active on social. Uh, I've taken the time to learn about social and how it works so that, you know, I'm still talking to my friends and people. And it, it's amazing how people just, you know, they talk about change, how important it is. It's amazing how many people just don't respect it and move with it. What quality should every business person possess? Well, for one, flexibility. Two, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, following up, 
you know, being a follow-up, I mean, it's amazing how many how many games you don't get chosen into because you're just not a person that people feel they can rely on or takes too just too long to get a hold of you. So, you know, just because you're working remotely, it doesn't give you the right to take your time and, and, and not be connected. You've got to be more connected now than ever, or you got to have somebody helping you stay connected. So when people are reaching out, uh, you can you can stay on track. And I think you got to be accountable. Um, I, I think when you say you're going to do something, you got to do it. You got to keep your word, regardless whether it's in a contract or not. And the accountability is 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 really the difference between really caught women and girls, men and boys. It's accountability. It's like if we talk about something, and I'm asking you to do something. You agree to do it. Can I count on you to do it? And uh, that's become a really, really, really wobbly characteristic. Um, you know, keeping your word and, and doing what you say is should not be a wobbly characteristic. It's the cornerstone of every great business person, frankly. Um, and it's definitely the beginning of you becoming a real adult is being accountable. So the faster that happens, like for me, it happened when I was 10. I'm not sure that that's a typical normal uh, rate of process, but you know, it needs to happen. And I think, you know, parents are the, the number one cause of this not happening is, you know, I always tell parents, you want to help your kids? Stop helping them. That's how you can help your kids. Stop doing everything, making it easy for them because it really takes away from the accountability ultimately that as any adult knows, it's just inevitable. You're going to have to face some serious accountability. And the earlier on that you're accountable, the easier it is as you become an adult. Have you seen that trend in the past several years and decades as a perhaps a parenting flaw? I do. I mean, look, our, our generation, the baby boomer generation, did very well. There, there's quite a bit of wealth. There's still a lot of poverty in this country too. But and you know, listen, we 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 want it, we think we want it easier for our kids than we had it. We think we want to have it better for our kids. First of all, who said it was that bad? And second of all, the life you have is the life you have. Anybody who's thinking that the life should be one thing or another, the life that you want to have for your kids is the life that they earn and they, they build and that you can help guide and consult with, not control, determine, predetermine. And I think the more, you know, the, the, when I see parents go, I just want my kid to have a better life than I had, I'm like, oh God, really? I mean, that, I always, listen, my kids don't want to hear my stories. They don't want to hear how poor I was and I don't blame them, but I certainly don't want them to live the life that I think that they wanted to live, which is better than my life. Like, I want them to live the life that they have worked hard for and the life that they deserve, they decide that they deserve. I wonder how much of that is a consequence of the times, right? In this country over the past several yeah. years and decades, uh, things have been relatively good. Things have been, by and large, growing in a positive way. And so, as they say, easy times make soft people or some variation of that. Um, maybe that's part of it. Uh, maybe, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think part of that is just, I don't know about that. I, mean, I think part of that is how you're parented, how you're raised, and, and how you educated, the mentors and influences you've had on you. You know, I've seen some really, really aggressive, phenomenal business people that grew up pretty wealthy. And I've seen some, and grew, I've seen a lot of phenomenal, particularly entrepreneurs that grow up incredibly poor. And there's a tendency to see that people that grew up incredibly poor uh, because of their circumstances, they're, they push themselves a little harder. But it's all teachable. Uh, it's all mental mindset, whether you want to reprogram and get your brain going 
ultimately to, to work its best, you, you do have a choice in the matter. I, I tell people all the time, like, it isn't about the corner office, it isn't about where you were born only. It's about what you decide you want to do. I would say it doesn't matter where you're at. It only matters what you're willing to accept. So you get to a certain point, if you're willing to accept making, you know, 75000 a year and living in a nice little apartment, and all right, nothing wrong with that. That's what you want to accept. But realize the reason why you're in that circumstance is because you want to accept it, not because you have no other choices. And I've always had a high level of non-acceptance. When people ask my best characteristic, it's I'm tenacious, but I'm also creative. I'm accountable, and I have a high level of non-acceptance. High level. Almost to a fault. What's the hardest part of running a business? The people. I mean, you would think it's the customers, the product, but it's the people. Like, especially in this day, there's such high expectations of what employees want. And also... Um, with the unemployment market low, there's a lot of leverage you know the employees have, and there's an expectation level of really working less and working less and getting paid more. So, you know, getting your people sold in on your vision and getting them to execute on your vision, and making sure your people feel are they're they're included, inclusiveness is is any 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 manager will tell you. Uh, you know, we're battling with our, our own employees more than we're battling with our customers. Uh, I think the other thing is financing. You know, financing's got a little bit tricky. Um, so, you know, obviously you want to take in a little more than you spend. And you got to be careful, again, not to grow out of business because having enough money, even though you're making money, cash flow is huge. And if you've got money out in the street, receivables or an inventory, you know, having enough money to support growth is always tricky because you're going to be partners either with a bank or investors. And so, you know, it's great. You got a great idea and you're growing, but where are you going to get that growth money from is a big deal. And so it's a good question that a lot of, a lot of entrepreneurs don't have. You did mention employees a second ago. What do you look for when hiring? Simple. I look for curiosity and I look for enthusiasm. Curiosity and enthusiasm will take you to commitment most of the time, you know, if somebody's not enthusiastic and they're not curious, asking questions, then they're, they're tough to teach. Uh, and, you know, looking for employees that are fat, faithful, available, and teachable. Um, teachable is so important, and they've got to be faithful. They've got to believe in the plan and believe in you that you can lead the way. Um, and it's, it's tough to find, you know, especially, you know, curious and, and, and making sure you're available is just, you know, I'm working from home. Like, I don't know. I don't know where all that comes from. I, I think that's going to get corrected. I don't see us in a five-day work week in the office, but I can see most employers, you know, pushing for the three possible four-day work week, which is fine. Um, I like that, a little more flexibility. But enthusiasm and curiosity is everything. Uh, it's very, very, very important ingredients. And those are two important ingredients that I look for. And it really is the guideline to whether you're going to be teachable and whether I'm going to be able to get you to really understand how this business really works. What changes have you seen post-COVID in terms of the environment at work, business structure in general? Um, well, credit credit is impossible. Collecting money is just impossible. I don't know why. Uh, you know, it's definitely a shortage of accounting people. It's not a sexy area that people want to go into. I think our police department is 
I'm really, really nervous about what we've now done to our police department between COVID and between Black Lives Matters. It's just not sexy to be a police officer. So security has become a huge issue. Every, every police department that I've talked to, they're down 20, 25%, difficult to recruit. And then half their staff can't wait to get out the door. And I bring it up because it has an effect on retail. You know, people are not booming to open up more retail stores because of, because of theft and because of other security reasons. Uh, so that, it takes its toll uh, in many ways. I think supply process was really bad and now it's kind of worked itself out, but everything's more expensive. So things got more expensive because of COVID and then now there's no more COVID, but they still hold on to a lot of the increased prices. And then we're all facing higher costs on just about everything we're buying. And it definitely takes its toll uh, when you're selling to, you know, lower middle income people. Um, and I think also, you know, it's hard to hire people. Like a lot of people don't want to go to the office every day. And you have a bunch of people that don't want to work. Uh, there's staggering numbers of people that are home that can work, that won't work, or unemployment rates low. And then you've got a bunch of people that are dictating that what they will and won't do. Uh, so, uh, and then the last thing I'll say is, I, I just want to rant about this, but the customer service is like, it's just a complete lost art. I mean, we, we stopped doing one of the most fundamental things that we should all be doing in business, which is serving, taking care of people. And that's what business is about, not just filling your pockets, but it's about taking care of people, you know, adding value. Value is what you can do for someone they can't do for themselves. So, you know, serving people and taking care of people is huge. And you go to restaurants, you go to stores, and nobody wants to take care of you. You know, everything's self-checkout. By the way, can you show me where this is? And they give you like a blank look. Um, I'm sure they're going through their own pains of trying to hire people. But going into a place and getting good service is a pure rarity. It's a lost art, uh, and it's a shame. Um, that, those are the main things. <laughs> I'm, I'm very externally distracted, um, which is what I think makes me a good entrepreneur. Is I, I try to pay attention to everything, even though most of it has nothing to do with me, because it all all the grains of sand is kind of equals the beach, and you, you always want to try to get a feel for what's going on. And I'm looking for the white space, you know, I'm looking for like what's needed, and that's why that's why you know. I'm trying to I'm always show a lot of empathy and compassion of what's going on around me, which enables me to see what other people are thinking and feeling. And then I can see the white space. Maybe it's something I could deliver uh, based on that. How do you stay hungry after all these years? You know, that's a good question, but I think it's, you know, you got to trick yourself for me. Um, you know, obviously I've never worked. Well, I shouldn't say never. I, I would say that it's now been a good 25, 30 years now where I haven't worked for money. So people always say to me, you know, Brandon, you could retire. I could have retired at 40 or 64, but I've never really worked for money. You got to want to, you got to want to teach more than being a teacher. You got to want to help people feel better more than being a doctor. You know, you got to want to really come up with cool collectibles and, and kind of fulfill people's dreams by meeting an athlete or getting really cool collectibles more than being a sports marketer or a collectible guy. Like, so for me, you know, that hunger comes from the excitement of doing what I do not necessarily based on the financial win, which generally, if you do a good job, you're going to have those financial wins. You know, I think the big problem is not how I stay hungry because that's, you know, when you grow up hungry and also you trick your mind into making sure that, you know, hey, my mindset is, Brandon, nobody thinks you can still do it. I don't know if they're still going to buy anything anymore. But in my soul, I know that, I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty damn good at this. So I have my soul and my mindset kind of meet up together to keep me in, 
somewhat of a stable, but the underdog role. The, 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 the real question really is, it's not about how do you stay hungry, but how do you unwind out of having, you know, when you're trying to create an extraordinary career and be really great at something, how do you unwind out of it? And we see a lot of our top, top athletes struggle to do it because you put such an emphasis and energy and commitment towards being great. And then all of a sudden you're like, well, you don't have to be great anymore. And, you know, it's, 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 it's difficult. And, you know, I have a lot of friends that are incredibly what they do and we're all looking at each other. Like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't wind out of this and maybe do something else. I'm so good at this and used to this. So it's, it's a good question. And it's, it's a pretty significant problem. I talked a lot about it in my third book, Living on Purpose. If you have a, an adult or a friend that's over 40, you, got, you go to my website, pick up that book in a heartbeat because it's written for those people exactly. What is it about our culture that idolizes athletes, puts them on a pedestal? Um, it's just it's just such a unique talent, a unique uh, level of competition that most of us can't do. You know, it's like, we all have our fantasies about different careers and stuff that we could do. A lot of it because we just love what that career brings and does. Or, But with athletes, most of us know that we can't do that. So it makes them in a, put them in a special category. I think it's probably blown up out of, out of proportion, frankly. I mean, we should be feeling that way about our doctors and our teachers and emergency workers. And those are the ones that we really need to get behind and pay a lot more and tribute more, particularly our teachers. Don't get me started. But, you know, the athletes, you know, they're unique. And also, it's easy to become a fan of them. It's almost a little religion-like, something you can believe in. And it doesn't give you much pushback other than a win and a loss. Um, so that, that's kind of what sports does. It, 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 it gives you that relief. It gives you that break. gives you something to believe in that isn't going to give you any controversy, especially these days. You know, you need that. It gives you that little break. So and then you get kind of emotionally caught up in it all. Um, having seen all the ups and downs for quite some time, right up close and personal. Um, there's some relevance to it. And like I said, maybe we're over, maybe we're overdoing it a little bit with some of the talent and we should be paying attention more to some other levels of really extraordinary people. I'll get you out on this. If a young person comes to you asking advice about business, starting their own business, making their mark in business, what would you tell them? Tell them, first of all, go work for someone else and go learn how business gets done on someone else's roof. And don't just work for any company, work for a company that's going to actually grow you. You know, the most important thing I tell young people is, you know, you, are you a rose? What's your rate of growth, rate of self-effectiveness? And a lot of young people jump the gun and want to do their own thing way too early and they're not equipped. You hear the stories about some people that actually make it, but they're very, very few. And they're, they're, they're extraordinary stories, but most don't make it because they don't have the experience or enough of the right people around them. So I tell people, take your time, take your time, no rush, you know, take your time, learn about the accounting, the finance, all the non-sexy things. doesn't mean you have to be great at it, but understand how it all puts, gets put together. Um, and listen, the ground rules and the fundamental stuff of business is part of it is an experience game. And part of it is just is having somebody, maybe the right people teach you. And if you, if you bypass it, you could be at a significant shortage when something really, the right thing happens, you won't be prepared. It'd be kind of like jumping into a basketball game without having to really learn how to dribble or how to play defense properly or, 
you know, you wouldn't be fully equipped, but you, you could jump out of the gym. We've seen so many players jump out of the gym, do all kinds of amazing things, and then they can't play defense or they're not really good passers. You know, you know, you want to learn how to be a great basketball player, like spend an enormous amount of time when you're younger on fundamentals and then let your God-given talent see how far it's going to take you. It's the same thing with business. Like, take the time to learn the fundamental stuff, even though it's not sexy and even though it's grueling, learning about finance, learning about accounting, learning about personnel, hiring, firing. It's not sexy, but it's a much a part about the business as anything. Mr. Stein, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much.